Welcome to Legislative Breakdown, a podcast from Boise State Public Radio. I'm Samantha Wright with Gary Moncrief, Boise State University political science professor emeritus who spends all his spare time studying legislatures around the country, including Idaho's. And in this podcast, we break down the Idaho legislature, what's happening, drilling down into the why and how it affects you. And uh, I know the legislature has wrapped up, but we have not. So we wanted to uh, put a cherry on top of this legislative session. Some have called it a catfight. At least I'm calling it that. Gary, would you say this is a catfight? Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, it's it's been a difficult session. So let's say that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So Republicans and Democrats were fighting. Republicans and Republicans were fighting. The House and the Senate were fighting all right down to the very last day last week. And I've got this piece of audio besides the fight that encapsulates kind of all of that. So bear with me. This comes from April 8th in the House State Affairs Committee. Republicans had just reintroduced restrictions on citizen initiatives. After the governor had vetoed the original bills, it would have made it harder to get an initiative on the ballot. So at this point, we hear from Republican Heather Scott and Democrat John Gannon. They were arguing with the chairman, Republican Stephen Harris, about whether or not they should bring this issue back up after the governor's veto. But don't worry so much about the technical jargon they're talking about. Just listen to the voices and the frustration that comes out on all three sides, starting with... Heather Scott. Is that the rule you're using to justify that we can rebring up this bill? We do have a ruling from the parliamentarian that I do support, and so I rule that these motions are in order. Okay, can you just tell me what the parliamentarian, what part of the Mason's rules is she using to justify that? Well, I'll let her or others later on uh, go through those arguments. Shouldn't we know that I'm not before in a we... Right now. Um, so if you wish that you this is inappropriate, then vote appropriately. I just want to know what, what rule she used. I'm going to rule that these motions are in order. Oh, okay. Representative Gannon. Uh, a so question, Mr. Chairman. Um, uh, is this a ruling from the parliamentarian or is this a ruling from the chair? So the chair makes the final ruling. Okay. And my advice from the parliamentarian is that this is fully in order, and so I'm ruling that this is in order. Okay. That's how it would break down. Yeah, thanks. Mr. Chairman. Representative Scott. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I know you think this is in order, but I, I just want you to show me where it's in order for this committee because I, I don't think it is in order. I, I just I, I can't find it in the book, and I'm just trying to you, – you mentioned 725, subsection 5. Is there another section I should be looking at? That's all I want to know. Thank you. I appreciate your concern. Does anyone else wish to discuss this, this topic? No. Thank you very much. Um, Representative Gannon. Before we get to the substitute motion, I'm wondering if we should ask the clerk uh, to take a look at the uh, chair's ruling with regard to Representative Scott's motion, that her motion is out of order. Um, so so my um, decision is final on that. So you don't want to ask the clerk about that? Correct. Okay. So, Gary, this seemed to me a prime example of what went on in the session this year, not just for lawmakers, but... Also for the public, a lot of confusion over really quick moving bills and a lot of frustration with the process. Yeah, I think that's right, Samantha. This raises a lot of issues about this session generally and about legislatures generally. There's an old line from John Dingell, who was a congressman from Michigan for many, many years. In fact, he was the longest serving congressman 
person in, uh, in history, I believe. And he was a parliamentarian of sorts in Congress. And he's famous for having a line that said, if you let me write procedure and I let you write policy, I'll screw you every time. <laughs> and essentially that's what I'm hearing here is people are concerned about procedure. I mean, rules matter. Procedure matters. And a lot of times when you hear this kind of discussion about procedural uh, movements, there's a lot going on behind the scenes there. Obviously, that's what's happening here is that it's really about getting some another effort at this initiative thing out there, even though it had been essentially beat down by the public and many, many examples of testimony, and then vetoed by the governor. And full disclosure, you were actually testifying against this bill. Yeah, I, I actually wound up testifying three times against this bill in, the, in its various forms. So, yes, I'm not objective on this. And the reason that I took a stand on it is because it was about procedure. In 43 years uh, <laughs> of uh, teaching political science at Boise State University, I almost never took, took a public stand on policy. But I did take a public stand on procedure on a couple of occasions, and and this one in particular. So, Gary, this is our last podcast for the 2019 legislative session, and I was going to ask your take on what you thought and what did didn't happen. And uh, we've got some great stories on BoiseStatePublicRadio.org about some of the stuff that happened toward the end of the session. And a shout out to, I think it's Nathan Brown from the Post Register who had a yeah. great wrap-up story about what didn't get done. And it's just sort of a, a long laundry list, everything from hemp to the citizen initiative on down the line. Um, so take a look at that. But Gary... I've got you, so what's your take? Well, you're right. That was a, uh, really was a, a very good piece by Nathan Brown. There, actually, there were four or five really good summaries of what did or didn't happen from various media outlets, I thought, this year. I guess I'd want to talk about this in terms of lessons learned or lessons not learned. Lesson one here is rules matter. You know, we've, we've talked about that. We just finished talking about it a minute ago, but... Anytime people start wanting to change the rules, they may couch that in some other terms. But the reality is always be somewhat suspicious of rule change proposals because there's something else behind it. People don't monkey around with the rules unless they're seeking some kind of policy advantage. Another lesson learned, I think, is that time in session does not equal productivity. <laughs> you know, this is a session that lasted 95 days. This is a session that when we first thought, you know, when the session first started, everybody thought they were going to be done in something like 78 days. We thought that. Yeah. Leadership was talking about that. Yeah. They were going to be out of here several weeks before they were. Yeah. And what actually got accomplished in those last few weeks? Really not a lot. Not a lot. When you think about it, other than people's blood pressure rising. There yeah. wasn't a lot that got accomplished that couldn't have been accomplished earlier. Now, I remember reading at one point a few years ago that every day the Idaho legislature's in session cost something like, I don't remember the exact figure, it was thirty or $35,000. Somewhere, yeah, it's always quoted thirty to thirty-five. Yeah. If you think about that, that means we spent about a half a million dollars wow. in the last two and a half weeks. And what did we accomplish? Uh, so, uh, it, you know, length of session does not necessarily mean 
quality of productivity. In fact, sometimes the longer they go, the worse it gets. And for a lot of reasons. I'm not particularly blaming the legislature for that, but there are things can happen. But this year, I'm willing to blame them a little more than usual, I think, for that. Okay. Another lesson to be learned here is that supermajority does not mean cohesion. You've got a, a legislative majority in Idaho. In this case, it's a Republican majority. And they, they use the term supermajority. I heard that term being used a number of times by members of the majority party this year. And the kind of inference, I think, of supermajority is that, well, we have this very large group. We have a mandate to govern. That's not necessarily true. I've talked before about the fact that the American electoral system translates votes into seats in a rather inefficient way. And what it does is it overrepresents the majority party. In Idaho, that's the Republicans. In Rhode Island, that's the Democrats. In Rhode Island, the, in a statewide vote, the Democrats usually get about 58, 60, 61 percent of the vote, but they've got 87 percent of the seats in the legislature. The same thing works in Idaho in reverse. In the last two general elections, the Republican Party in contested statewide races has averaged somewhere between 58 and 60 percent of the vote. In both cases, they've got 80 percent of the seats. It's a function of, the, of our electoral system. We almost always manufacture a larger majority in the legislature than actually exists in the public vote. That can be misleading, and it's especially misleading sometimes for the majority party. They think they know it all because they have a supermajority. Well, what we discovered this year is, A, they don't know it all, and B, they don't even agree on what all is. You know, there was a lot of factional arguments within that supermajority. And this is, again, very common. When you get that large a majority, it tends to fractionate or to factionate. I guess fractionate <laughs> is the word here. It tends well, to break into factions and they kind of fight among themselves. Very we, common. We definitely saw this this year. We saw a little last year, but we, yeah. this year the Republican yeah. Party really yeah. had a lot of infighting. Well, I think we see it almost every year to some extent. And part of that is just because of the nature of the Republican Party right now, which is, you know, there are several very distinct factions within the party, uh, not just in Idaho, but, you know, throughout most states. It was worse this year. You're right. I think it was it was worse this year. And I think... I think part of that was because different factions basically had control over the different chambers. In other words, one faction had a, a more dominant role in the Senate, and the other faction had a more dominant role in the House. And so it's not only becomes a factional fight, it becomes a chamber fight. In between the House that, and the Senate. Between the House and the Senate. We seem to have seen a lot of that. And I guess the last thing I would, I would point out here is in terms of lessons learned is that it's never really a very good idea to approach anything, especially a legislative session, with the notion that you should do as we say and not as we do. I had the feeling that that was one of the things that was a, such a source of frustration for many people with the legislature this year. One of the things that leadership in both chambers hammered over and over was civility. We need to be civil. When you're testifying before committee, you need to be civil. When you're talking about issues, you need to keep it about the issues, not about personality. We need to be respectful of one another. We heard a lot of that. But when a, the controlling faction in an institution treats the general public with what I consider to be some, some form of disrespect, 
as I think we saw this year, then it's hard for them to then ask people who are being disrespected to in fact be civil. There was huge amount of frustration by people who were testifying on the Medicaid extension bill and especially on the initiative citizen changes, initiative. the citizen initiative changes. Many of those people, rightly or wrongly, felt that they were being disrespected by the institution and by the people in the legislature. And I don't think the legislators themselves understood that the approach they were taking, which was very short testimony, in some cases not able to ask questions of them, overwhelming testimony against a particular policy, and then the legislature passing it anyway, that's a little disrespectful. And then to ask people to be respectful of the institution and of the legislators strikes me as a kind of a blind spot in the legislature. So, Gary, we've had some really good feedback this year from listeners to Legislative Breakdown. One of those listeners is Kim from Caldwell. She had several great questions. Uh, We've answered quite a few of them sort of peripherally as we've gone on through the podcast. And this one came up. Where does the money come from to settle lawsuits Idaho loses over laws that turn out to be unconstitutional? And I thought we should answer this one because, A, the Constitutional Defense Council met this week, and the defense fund is likely to get a workout, as maybe there will be lawsuits over Medicaid requirements, among other things, so uh, we could see more of this. So what is the fund? Who is the council? Where does the money come from? Well, the money comes from a pot that's at the end of the rainbow that a number <laughs> of the legislators think apparently think exists. But beyond that, <laughs> about 23 or 4 years ago, there was this Constitutional Defense Fund created in Idaho, which was essentially to help the state defend itself against federal overreach as it saw it, whatever that means. Essentially, the legislature funds that through through the Joint Finance and Appropriation Committee. I assume it just comes out of uh, general fund money. Whenever there are uh, these lawsuits, they have to put some money into that in case they have to pay out money to uh, essentially to cover attorney's fees. And let's be clear, general fund means your tax dollars. Yeah, that's right. General fund money is based on sales tax money, personal income tax money, etc. Over the course of the 22 or 23 years that this fund has existed, there have been well over a dozen. I don't know the exact number now, uh, but I think it's around 13 or 14 lawsuits. And the state has lost almost all of them, and has had, wound up paying money out. You mentioned that the council had, had uh, met this week and to discuss a payout. This is the case involving a same-sex parent rights uh, lawsuit that the state lost. That wound up costing over $225,000 in terms of attorney's fees. So over the course of this 22 or 23 years, the council has meted out something on the order of, I think it's about $2 million now. Uh, the council is made up, this is by statute, of the governor, the attorney general, and the presiding officer in the House and the Senate. That would be the president pro tem and the speaker of the House. There's four people that serve as this 
Council. Okay, I hope that answered that for Kim. All right, Gary, this is the end for now. So um, never say never. Yeah, it's been an interesting and very frustrating session, I think, for everybody. And I think almost everybody's glad it's over for this year. So I'm not necessarily glad the podcast is over, but I'm glad the session's over. Gary, it's been great. Thanks. Legislative Breakdown is a podcast from Boise State Public Radio. I'm Samantha Wright with Boise State Political Science Professor Gary Moncrief. Our original music comes from local artist and composer Will Hall of the band's New Dude and Like of the Dog. Thanks to everyone who listens to this podcast. By the way, who are you? Help us find out by taking a very quick survey on our website. Just go to BoiseStatePublicRadio.org, click on the podcast tab for the podcast listener survey. And thanks. And thanks for listening throughout this session. Remember, it's your legislature. Legislature.